Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check out the Sonic Cinema Patreon. I've been keeping up with uh, as many many of the uh, newer watches among older films I've done during the uh, moments since I was uh, furloughed from my job. And uh, I'm also writing a few longer pieces. I've done pieces on uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub series. I've also got a couple of other ones in the uh, pipeline. That is patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. I'm joined today once again by Matthew Saliba. Uh, last year we did a uh, couple of episodes with regards to the Godzilla franchise and kaiju movies in general. This year, uh, this time we are talking about a uh, couple of different filmmakers and a couple of, I guess you could say, movie franchises that sort of uh, came from the same basic story structure. Uh, in Akira Kurosawa and his films Yojimbo and Sanjuro, and Sergio Leone in his Man With No Name trilogy. And I'm pleased to be joined to discuss these with by Matthew Saliba. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show, Brian. Um, when when did one of the thing the thing that I like about this is I've known for about as long as I'm I've been familiar with A Fistful of Dollars, which was the first of these five movies that I had seen. Uh, that was based on Yojimbo, though it it took a few years for me to finally watch Yojimbo and then Sanjuro, and then I include them and then I purchase them uh, shortly thereafter through the Criterion DVDs. Um, when did you first, uh, what was your first experience with both uh, Kurosawa and uh, Sergio Leone? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting because uh, I think uh, I think like you and, and, and a lot of people, I I discovered Leone before Kurosawa. Uh, I mean, in film school, uh, they taught, uh, they showed us Rashomon and Seven Samurai. But I mean, as far as uh, my taking the initiative to uh, to rent a film and uh, discover it on my own, uh, it was definitely Leone first. And um, yeah, I mean, right from the right from the start, uh, when I discovered Leone, I was around the time when I started getting into filmmaking. So, uh, in addition to enjoying the the story aspect. Uh, a lot of the technical uh, aspects of the film jumped out at me right away from the uh, the framing, these beautiful extreme close-ups of faces that look like they belong on murals in the, mm -hmm. in the Louvre. Uh, but then uh, and also the, the music. Uh, music, uh, especially in my earlier films, I was always very interested in music. And so uh, the soundtrack of the Neo Morricone is what immediately jumped out at me. And mm -hmm. in many respects, uh, there's an argument to be made that Neo Morricone deserves a co-director credit just because the the soundtrack in many respects uh, carries a lot of the uh, the film in fact i don't even think uh, there's ever a moment in the movie where there isn't any some any some any sort of soundtrack beneath it um <clears throat> but then uh, as far as kurosawa goes um maybe to give the listeners a bit of context uh, one of my new year's resolutions this year was to uh 
discover films that I hadn't really watched before or I had previously dismissed uh, just because um, uh, I feel like, you know, um, it's funny because like way back when, when I was in university, sorry for the tangential story here, but uh, when I was in university, a friend and I, uh, we had a discussion about how, you know, um, we vowed to, uh, you know, never restrict our tastes in film to just one thing. Like uh, we, we would always watch we would always keep an open mind and watch different things. And then someone had told us, well, that's impossible because eventually you do develop special interests and you inevitably uh, veer towards certain genres and you kind of focus on that. And I found myself, you know, these past few years doing just that, uh, much to my uh, chagrin, where I would just focus on one thing that, and, you know, I, I was very knowledgeable about certain types of films, but, uh, my film knowledge as a whole is remarkably naive and uh, beginner. So <clears throat> uh, I decided to subscribe to the Criterion channel, and I've been watching different uh, filmmakers. I've discovered people like Carl Theodore Dreyer, which who I would never admit, who I would never, uh, I never thought that I would ever call myself a fan of his, but I really enjoy his movies. Uh, I've been discovering some of the French New Wave, and uh, in addition to that, it would be Akira Kurosawa. And uh, it's it's really remarkable because it's it's going to be weird to say this, but Kurosawa re- reminds me so much of Sergio Leone, which is interesting because it's Leone who obviously sort of took Kurosawa's style and made it his own thing. But I think that's what really uh, attracts me to a lot of Kurosawa's works because his films are kind of like westerns, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, and not only that, but I mean, Kurosawa also has <clears throat> such a versatility because in addition to doing these period pieces, uh, he's also done film noir. He's also done uh, martial arts movies. Um, so he has a, a versatility. And I really admire filmmakers who can sort of jump from genre to genre, but yet still maintain their unique stamp as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the funny thing about Kurosawa is that he, he's a filmmaker who was inspired by American cinema and American genres like Westerns, like film noir. And then subsequently, American filmmakers were inspired by him. And it basically turned into a cycle of inspiration. And uh, I mean... You know, it, it's funny. I think my first, I think my first Kurosawa film was Ron, and that was because of the uh, re-release and then the great movies review that Roger Ebert gave it um, for its fifteenth anniversary when it was released in two thousand. So I think that ended up being my first one. Although I think I might have seen Dreams before that. So I didn't really get into his samurai films until probably watching yojimbo a couple of years after that and well ron is a samurai film but it's also an adaptation of macbeth or uh king lear um although kurosawa has also done a fantastic adaptation of macbeth as well in throne of blood Um, oh i love throne of blood that's that's one of my oh that's (laughs) 
Oh right? yeah, like the, <clears throat> the 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 scene with the spirit at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 trees moving towards uh, the uh, in the final scene where uh, yeah, there's the illusion of the trees moving and uh, that final shot where Toshiro Mifu- well spoiler alert I guess <laughs> but uh, that that's uh, the shot there where he gets the arrow through the neck yeah uh, that's oh yeah I love that film yeah it's fantastic I I just watched it for the first time. Uh, couple of years ago to review it and i absolutely loved it um but yeah i mean i i fistful of dollars was my first one of the five here and i mean part of it was because of the music i've been familiar with the morricone score and uh i really once once i listened to those those score once I started to listen to that music and those scores, I was immediately, um, I was immediately hooked on them. And, uh, to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, um, one of the things we had to do, cause I, I was, I was a, uh, music industry major. I was a recording major in college. And, uh, one of the things we had to do for one of the classes was we had to edit together an audio scene of using sound effects and what have you to tell a story and one of the things i did was um i basically called dialogue from uh different soundtracks and in addition to sound effects and i also i basically did a western scene and i used the morcone music as sort of underscore for it oh Um, wow yeah and uh, it, it turned out really well, um, but that, so it was about 98, I think, is when I really got into uh, Morricone's music for that, and it's it's been a big inspiration ever since. Um, one of the albums of music that I've written was, it was a Western-themed album inspired by Morricone. Um and so it's the there's something about that sound there's something about the the way he uses uh sound effects on top and uh coyote yells when it comes to good the bad and the ugly the guitar the orchestrations um there's there's music there's some of the best music some of my favorite music i've ever heard is in those soundtracks i mean the the one that everybody is familiar with is the theme from the good, the bad, and the ugly. But um, listening more intently to the uh, other Man with No Name trilogy scores, and then going from there to Once Upon a Time in the West, and then his some of his other uh, collaborations with uh, Leone really, really show a something that's really. Uh, there's a lot of depth to Morricone's music, and that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about watching those films. Because, like you said, I mean, he 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 almost does deserve a co-directing credit because of the fact that his his music is indispensable to the way that those films uh, tell their story. Uh, and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I remember reading in a book about Sergio Leone. Uh, about how, um, and it was a really interesting process because usually um, 
as you would know, being a composer, uh, you'll compose music to a completed film. But if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, uh, Neil Morricone actually began composing even before a single frame of film was shot. And it's interesting because if I'm not mistaken, I think Leone may have actually staged scenes to the music before... I don't know if that's true or not, but I remember reading about that, and that's a very interesting approach to filmmaking, and that's probably mm. why so many of his westerns almost feel like operas, where everything's sort of drawn out. Yeah. Well, and I I do know, I have heard that story before, um, especially when it comes to uh, Ecstasy of Gold in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where Tuco is uh, running across the uh, the cemetery at the very end. Yes, and uh, that's that's the most noble story of that. But yeah, it would not surprise me. And yeah, and I know it's it's not the only time I've heard that story, but it was probably the one of the first. Inc- I would imagine it's one of the first and most infamous uh, or famous uh, instances of that happening of uh, music being written for before the film is even shot and. I, I think that is it's definitely got to be part of the reason where you look at the editing of um, any of the films in particular. I mean, you can go with good, the good, the bad, the ugly, but really any of the films you see there's, there's a particular rhythm to the way Leone edits sequences that is so perfectly in sync with the film to where it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're right to compare the opera comparisons very apt uh, when it comes to uh, those films. Yeah, and that's it's something I've noticed in Italian genre cinema in general, where when there is a death scene, sometimes death scenes take a little or a lot longer than they would probably in real <laughs> life, just because that's I think that's a, that's very much an Italian thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, and 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 just going back to the music too, um, I don't know how it is for you, but Sometimes I find um, when I listen to soundtracks uh, for any given film, I find like it's very hard for me to appreciate the music without seeing the visual. Or if I'm listening to the music, I'm, I'm picturing scenes. Whereas I find with the Neo Morricone's music, a lot of it stands on its own. Like even if this was released as a, uh, as an album with no relation to any movie, it would stand on its own as great music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know if that also plays into the fact that this was something that was, that Neo Morricone composed the music and then Sergio Leone shot a film to that soundtrack. Uh, so I don't know if that leads any more credence to that just because the music does stand on its own. I mean, I think there's, I think there's definitely something to be, uh, I, I think there's definitely some truth to that. And I mean, I do, and I mean, you know, because I, I'm a soundtrack junkie. I listen to soundtracks uh, all the time, and uh, you know, there are some soundtracks like Star Wars, like a lot of John Williams scores, where it's like it's impossible to think of anything other than the movie while listening yeah. to them, as great as they are. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, I, and yeah, it does happen. Now, I can picture. Uh, I can picture scenes from these movies whenever I'm listening to Morricone's um, soundtracks, but yeah, they they definitely do stand more on their own than uh, a lot of other soundtracks. I mean, I think that's kind of true with Morricone in general, 
not not just these scores. I mean, there are other scores of his that um, I've listened to over the years. Like the Mission is one of his uh, more famous mm. ones, where it's like I I've seen the movie a couple of times in my life, but I you know it's like the the music tells its own story, and that's one of the things that's so great about it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> I'll send you a few links, but a lot of people like, uh, again, like for me with Morricone, I discovered him through the man with no name trilogy, but, uh, he, he's done hundreds of, uh, Italian horror film, uh, soundtracks. Mm. And, uh, these are really exquisite pieces of music. Uh, he did this, he did a, he did the score for a film called what have you done to Solange? Uh, that's a soundtrack that's worth listening to. Uh, he also did the score to a film called Spasmo, which I know sounds funny, but, but it's a beautiful, it, it's a really, really great score. Um, so no, he's, he's very versatile and he may, I mean, it's, it's sort of a toss up between him and Angelo Badalamenti for me, but, uh, I, I may give the edge to Morricone because he does have a, a little more range with his, mm-hmm. his scores. I mean, because he has done scores for crime films, horror films, sci-fi. I mean, he's, yeah. he's done a, a lot of different stuff. Well, and Badalamente is a fantastic co- composer. I mean, but yeah, you're right. I, I do think Morricone probably does have a bit more range. I'm, I'm curious now to uh, see some of the films that he will, he had written movie, written music to in terms of uh, Italian horror. That's actually, I know, I know he's recorded he's recorded hundreds upon hundreds of scores over the years. But yeah, it, it's it's in. I'd be curious to see what a uh, Morricone uh, horror score sounds like. Um, oh, I'll I'll send you those links. I think you'll really get a kick out of this, and uh, it'll sh- it'll show you a different side to him too. Because, like you're right, because I think when you hear Morricone, it, you know everyone thinks about the guitar, the uh, coyote, all the western motifs, mm-hmm. and with good reason. But I mean, like, there's a whole different side to him, and uh, yeah, I think you'll, you'll find that pretty interesting. So was this the uh, was this the first year that first time that you had watched? Uh, Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Yes, I uh, looking back on it, like before, I, I I think the only Kurosawa films I had really seen were Rashomon and Seventh Samurai, and maybe Kaje Musha. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, no, this was the first time I'd ever seen Yojimbo. Uh, I've always it's it's been on my bucket list for the longest time, just because mm-hmm. you know, obviously, everyone knows a fistful of dollars is. Uh, uh, to put it uh, politely, of uh, uh, an unofficial <laughs> adaptation of the of the yeah. film, um, or a reboot, or uh, how they would say it nowadays. But um, so so yeah, it's just wa- and again, uh, watching Yojimbo, it, it, it was almost like how sometimes people discover a film by watching its remake first. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So because I had seen A Fistful of Dollars, and because uh, and much to my surprise, uh, A Fistful of Dollars is literally almost a beat for beat, uh, the same thing yeah. as in Yojimbo. Uh, it was an interesting experience because uh, I found like the differences between the two films. Uh, I, I liked pointing those out, how they changed a few things. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, like it begins with the, you know, the man with no name walking to, into a town, getting a sense of what's been going on in the city, learning about the two gangs, playing them against each other. Uh, you know, he's got the, the barkeep, 
uh, sidekick, much like in A Fistful of Dollars. And also, and this was something I actually thought Leone had invented, and this almost disappointed me because uh, it was this was also taken, but the scene where... Um, uh, Mafune's trying to prove his worth to one of the gangs, so he walks by the Undertaker and he says, you know, get two two yeah. caskets ready and then after he comes back and he's like my mistake, three, or something to that effect, and it's like, oh, you know, I thought that was one of the original things in A Fistful of Dollars but mm -hmm. I had no idea that this was done in Yojimbo, so um, I, I, I love Yojimbo I mean, I'm still going on my Kurosawa crusade here, but uh, uh, you know, for, for the time being, Yojimbo probably is my favorite of the bunch mm -hmm. just because uh it's really energetic uh, mafune is wonderful there's so many wonderful uh, uh fight scenes that are staged and um you know and, and even the score too i mean although i i, I do find that the score is kind of what gives the man with no name trilogy an edge i feel over yojimbo mm -hmm. um but i mean i the, the but uh, Kurosawa always really knew how to begin his films. You know, when you see the yeah. Toho logo and it's boom, 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 boom. You know, it just it really gets you pumped up and uh, interested in that. So, um, so yeah, I loved Yojimbo. Um, <clears throat> as far as Sanjuro goes, I think I spoke a little bit about this uh, when I posted a little mini review. But um, well, because uh, now having because uh, apparently like Sanjuro was supposed to be a different film entirely, but based on the success of Yojimbo, they added Toshiro Mifune to the movie. And I feel like knowing that now, because I, I learned that after the fact, after I had watched the film, that sort of explains why there's such a tonal imbalance with that movie it's almost like they Cassandra is very comedic and uh, by comparison to yojimbo so it's almost like uh, this is going to sound funny but it's almost like they if they made um i don't know a sequel to uh the minions but they said but because john wick is really hot at the moment we got to add john wick <laughs> to that movie <laughs> somehow and then it's just so um so it just it uh, because yojimbo was such a dramatic film and uh and so it's it, it it just felt a little weird seeing this very serious character in this sort of you know bumbling co comedic uh, film, which would have might have which might have been kind of interesting on its own as sort of like a, a subversion of the samurai, kind of making fun of the films that he's made. But uh, I feel like uh, whatever business decision went behind adding Mafune to the film. For, at least for me, took away from Sanjuro. So it's not my favorite of the bunch, uh, although I've had many friends write me and tell me how uh, silly I am and how I should give it another shot. So it is, uh, it's back on the bucket list as far as a second viewing goes. But uh, no, between the two, for me, Yojimbo is my favorite. Yeah, I mean, I would... Yeah, I mean, you, it's, it's hard to go against Yojimbo being the better of the two. And I, I actually did not know that as far as, like, the, the reason, uh, as far as uh, Sanjuro, the Mifune character, be, being brought in at the last minute for uh, the movie Sanjuro, and, and that's how that came to be. That actually, and that does make a lot of sense as to why tonally it's so... It is so different from Yojimbo. Uh, you're you're absolutely right about the music in uh, Yojimbo. I absolutely love that that score at the beginning. That it sets the tone perfectly, and it's it's one of those. The thing that I like about Yojimbo, and I I kind of give it the edge over um, a fistful of dollars as far as the 
telling of that specific story partially because of the fact that I think it gets to it, it gets to all of the beats in a more efficient manner and it, it doesn't really it doesn't really uh linger as much. I I think I think the there's something about uh as great as I as much as I enjoy Fistful of Dollars, I I think I think it's not quite as streamlined as Yojimbo is in terms of telling that story. But I will say there are things about I, I really love the way color adds to the story in Fistful of Dollars as opposed to the black and white in Yojimbo. Yeah, and I mean, those are all very, very fair points, too. And I mean, <clears throat> you know, there's there's certainly an argument to be made about, you know, the original being the uh, the standard bearer. And obviously, you know, th that, that came first. Uh, and a fistful of dollars is essentially Yojimbo, although I would say that sort of blossomed into a much more successful series mm -hmm. than, let's say, like like the jump from a fistful of dollars to a, for a few dollars more is certainly more significant than from Yojimbo to Sanjuro, where I feel mm -hmm. like that's a bit of a drop in quality. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's funny because, like, I, I find, like, now as I'm getting more into uh, film writing, uh, and I'm sure you could attest to this, too, I feel like there's a lot of different ways that you can critique a movie. I mean, there's obviously you want to critique a film based on, you know, the technical merits, the story, how it relates to you personally, how, how, how you feel about it. But I find, like, um, this might be more difficult to do with films that are coming out now, but, I mean... For in the case of a film that's 60 years old, I feel like it's important to look at uh, its contribution to film history in general. And if we're going to look at it like that, I mean, Yojimbo, as, as wonderful a film as it is, admittedly, it's another period samurai film that Kurosawa could do in his sleep at this mm -hmm. point. Like he had, you know, I, I'm not taking anything away, but let's, you know, we'll call a spade a spade. It, it is another samurai movie. Whereas with Sergio Leone, the only film he had made prior to A Fistful of Dollars was uh, The Colossus of Rhodes, which is this sort of machiste, uh, strongman Hercules movie. So, um, so, so not only did he, uh, not only was this his second film, but it's uh, his, his first in a genre that he had never uh, attempted before. And, <clears throat> you know, I feel like what he achieved with A Fistful of Dollars is. Uh, uh, for one, he revitalized a genre that, let's be honest, had been dead for a long time. Uh, and furthermore, what I what I really get out of this is that he took a, a uniquely American genre and through the perspective of an Italian point of view, he presented the Wild West in a far grittier, violent, and much more realistic fashion, which, you know, despite the, the romantic American myth that would suggest otherwise would have you believe, uh, is in fact what this period in American history was actually like. You know, like, it's very hard for me to watch John Ford and Howard Hawks uh, westerns because they feel so sanitized and almost like... Uh, Mr. Rogers compared to like the work that Leone did. So, and, and, and again, not to go off on another tangent, but this is sort of why I hate this very um, segregationist approach to storytelling where people believe that, you know, only certain people can t tell certain stories. Uh, you know, there's, you know, for example, some of the best films about male behavior have been directed by women. 
you know, American Psycho, for example, some of the most insightful films about same-sex couples were directed by a straight guy, and blue is the warmest color. And, you know, the ultimate irony, you know, one that would make the most ardent uh, American jingle quake in his boots uh the western was never in better hands than framed through the camera of sergio leone an italian who barely spoke english mm-hmm. so i just so i just feel like you know uh, what it achieved culturally and also the improvements that it made from yojimbo as far as the score goes because the you know again a, a neo morricone score is just sublime it, it permeates nearly every frame of film with a, a sense of urgency and tension that, to be honest, I didn't necessarily always get with Kurosawa's film. But again, they're both outstanding films, and, mm-hmm. you know, I at, at the end of the day, I mean, if these are the two last films left on planet Earth, I mean, I, I'd be... I, I wouldn't complain, because you couldn't go wrong. But <laughs> honestly, I, I, I do feel like this is one of those occasions where uh, a remake does sort of outshine the original, because I guess if you're going to... I guess because I thought we were just going to compare Yojimbo with A Fistful of Dollars, but if you are going to... Com- include the man with no name trilogy then it's really no contest because the good the bad and the ugly is you know i mean i love kurosawa and with all due respect (laughs) to kurosawa i mean even he never made something as um transcendent as uh uh, the good the bad and the ugly although uh ikiru (laughs) might be ikiru might come close but for different reasons right no and and look i mean no and i i will be i'll be the first to admit is that even even though I even though I think Yojimbo's is slightly better as an individual movie compared to Fistful of Dollars, I will readily admit that in terms of cultural influence, Fistful of Dollars and subsequently the Man with No Name trilogy holds considerably greater cultural weight, not just because of the fact that of what it did with the Western genre, but and Western music really when it came to uh, Morricone and how that played into uh, the rest into the later parts of uh, Western scoring, but also the introduction of Clint Eastwood and essentially elevating him to uh, star status. Oh, that's right. We haven't even spoken about Clint Eastwood and all of this. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, my God. Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, this just propelled him to superstardom. Um, And even then, because I think at the time Eastwood was doing, uh, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think before they hired Eastwood, I think Henry Fonda was considered first and he had turned it down. And then there was Charles Bronson, who didn't like the script, so he turned it down. But it was funny because those two would end up being in Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but I think because at the time Eastwood was doing TV westerns, mm-hmm. which were very sanitized yeah. at the time. So I think this was uh, almost casting a little against type because mm-hmm. he was playing a, a much more cerebral and uh, menacing, well, yeah, sort of a menacing anti-hero, a sort of John Wick before there was a John Wick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and so, yeah, I mean, if we're going to compare, uh, performances, um, you know, it's, it's hard to compare because again, one of the things that, uh, I had to get used to when I was watching a lot of Japanese cinema is that sort of, I mean, I guess what we would call, you know, state size, we would call overacting, but like that, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of, uh, almost, uh, I don't know if you'd call it kabuki acting or just this very, 
Um, you know, like uh, when when Toshiro Mufune gets really intense, he'll start yeah. screaming, and it's but it, but it's a very uniquely Japanese thing that you see in these types of movies. Whereas you know Clint Eastwood is you know understated almost to the point where he looks like he has a resting heart rate of negative three. <laughs> but uh, so it's it's a little difficult because it's very different styles. <clears throat> I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I, I guess I might give the edge to Toshiro Mifune just because I do feel Clint Eastwood's finest moment is in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But uh, but even then, it's almost unfair to compare because at this point, Mifune is basically playing this archetype that he's played in The Hidden Fortress and yeah. Seven Samurai, and whereas this was Clint Eastwood's uh, first time at that. But they're yeah. both, again, it, it, it feels like, uh, you know, it almost feels like we're splitting hairs. It's just like they're, they're both wonderful films mm-hmm. for very different reasons. I mean, um, <clears throat> I, 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 you know, in, if I could go back, I would probably try to start with Yojimbo just because I find it's more interesting to watch films in chronological order so you could see the, uh, the journey it's gone on. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but at the same time, I mean, uh, I... You know, if if you start with the Man with No Name trilogy, um, you know that's the thing about remakes. Remakes almost inevitably increase interest in the original. So, yeah. um, so I'm sure people will inevitably discover these films. Yeah, I mean the the thing that I it it is very yeah. I mean, and we're we are essentially splitting hairs. My 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 point here is not to necessarily my point in this discussion is not necessarily to compare and contrast the relative quality of these series that's not i one of the thing part of the reason i really wanted to talk about these is i i'm interested in how these series essentially started from a similar place in terms of the narrative and then veered off and yeah i mean with sanjuro it it that that context of uh, Mifune's character being brought in at the last minute it, or after the fact because of the success of Yojimbo makes a lot of sense because that film is so different from Yojimbo. It is much more comedic. And it's one of those things where I almost... It, it's it's weird to think... I, I love that the that film ends up recontextualizing... Sanjuro less as simply a, you know, sort of a hired gun for hire and more of a mentor to this, this clan that he's trying to, he, he's almost begrudgingly trying to help out to a certain extent, but he's also, he, he's also trying to teach them something about how, how to, uh, operate in this society and that's one of the things that i really like about sanjuro you know it's funny because uh now that you just brought that up i i that's a point that i hadn't even taken into consideration that that actually was one of the things that i did kind of enjoy about sanjuro um that's interesting because yeah that's a twist that we never really see with the man uh, with the uh, clint eastwood character because right. he does sort of remain relatively the same um yeah, I mean, uh, again, maybe had more uh, planning went into that film, they could have um, maybe toned down the comedic elements and sort of made it uh, almost like a one-man Seven Samurai, where uh, mm-hmm. these guys are being oppressed by their, but they're being oppressed and they have to hire this one guy to sort of teach them. 
I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but it's almost like the Mighty Ducks, where <laughs> he's he's uh, you know he's taking these uh, he's, he's taking all these guys under his wing and training them. Um, but um, but yeah, you know I'll have to give it another go at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, in in all fairness, I've only seen the film once, and right. I guess I had certain expectations after Yojimbo because it was such a thrilling film. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, no, that's a very interesting point and a, sort of an interesting wrinkle in the character that gives uh, Mufune a bit of an edge over Eastwood. Yeah, but I mean, overall, it's like I I think the, the and the interesting the fun thing the funny thing about um, the Man with No Name trilogy we 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 call it that, but ultimately Eastwood is essentially playing is playing three different characters. Like he's not playing the same character in each movie. It just happens to be. Clint Eastwood at the center, essentially playing a similar archetype in all three movies. Do you think so? I, I've always I've been debating that for the longest time too because he is called different things in each yeah. movie. But but you know, thinking about this because when I was watching Yojimbo, I always thought that Toshiro Mifune's character was called Yojimbo, but it's not because he in, in Yojimbo and Sanjuro he makes up different names based on plants that he sees nearby and what yeah. day of the week it is. So I, I couldn't help but so I don't know if that is another sort of quote unquote tribute to <laughs> to uh, Akira Kurosawa, where you know maybe it's just a case where um, you know depending on his circumstances, Eastwood just has a different name because I think he's Blondie uh, in uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I think he's Joe in uh, in A Fistful of Dollars. Yeah. I don't. I forget what he's called in a, for a few dollars more, but yeah, I can't remember either. So, uh, but no, but but that could very well be the case where it just it just happens to be the same uh, mm. actor playing different versions of the character. But um, but I don't know. I feel like after watching Yojimbo, it might be a bit of a tribute to that where he just calls mm. himself whatever. The circumstances call for yeah yeah and and uh <coughs> going to for a few dollars more uh the the thing that there's something i i love the shifts in i i love the shifts in tone in all three movies like there's something that in the man with no name trilogy where it's like this whole dollars feels even though it doesn't seem look like or feel like a traditional western in a, in terms of its style from a narrative standpoint it still feels it still has a lot of that uh a, a lot of familiar uh western tropes that it deals in for a few dollars more it feels like there's something there's something a bit more mournful in it and part of it comes through in the Marconi score but it basically it it's interesting that it essentially becomes this buddy movie with uh Eastwood's character and Lee Van Cleef's character as well and it, oh yeah and they're essentially they're essentially both helping and trying to apprehend uh bank robbers in the movie yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, for a few dollars more, uh, again, it, it introduces, like you were saying, Lee Van Cleef, who, uh, if, if you really want to get, do a deep dive into Westerns, he's done so many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he starred in, like, hundreds of Westerns. But, um, yeah, I mean, what I like about for, uh, what a, for a few dollars more and the trilogy in general is that each film gets much bigger in scope. Yeah. Uh, because for, cause A Fistful of Dollars, 
uh, much like Yojimbo, it is a very small film in terms of its locations, and uh, you know, even it's literally it takes place in a small town. Whereas for a few dollars more, expands. I mean, you have the backstory uh, with the whole thing with the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's the the chimes with the the the, the watch there. Mm-hmm. I think is that yeah. yeah. So you, so yeah. you're so you're getting flashbacks, and you know, the the the, the, the cinematic language is changing a lot more than it was in uh, for for a fistful of dollars. Um, and also, it's. I just wanted to because I was just doing a bit of research here, and it turns out um, that uh, that yeah, uh, actually, uh, Leone Des did give explicit direction that uh, Morricone write the score before production starts because Leone would often shoot to the music on set. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that conf- so that's interesting. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's interesting because you see a lot of the same actors who appeared. In a, for a few dollars more, uh, which is a little jarring, and it might actually add some credence to your uh, to your uh, belief there that uh, Eastwood is playing a different character each time because all these characters are showing up again and again. Um, but yeah, and it's interesting because I do feel like as much as this is the Man with No Name trilogy, uh, for a few dollars more, in many respects, is Lee Van Cleef's film. Like yeah. he, in many respects, <laughs> feels like the main character. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I think even with this one, I think once again Charles Bronson was approached to star in the film, but uh, he felt that the sequel script was like the first one, so he passed. So then Lee Van Cleef came on board. So uh, that's one of those cases where I'm kind of glad he did because this is uh, Lee Van Cleef just has this one wonderful face where he can be you know charming and menacing at the same time like he's you know he's a western sociopath mm-hmm. well and it's it's funny because i completely forgot i keep forgetting whenever before i see it that klaus kinski is in for a few dollars more and uh, oh yes yeah, i forgot and, about that yes and and so you have somebody like him who presents a very different uh a, in energy all of his own you have lee fan cleef who's whose personality and characterization is who, whose personality is very different from clint eastwood and then you you have these three big personalities in terms of what they present but different they they do very different um things with those personalities as really it's it's always really interesting and really fun to rewatch that movie and see how these actors play off of one another. And sometimes even in moments where they're silent towards one another is one of the, uh, that's, that's one of the things that's so great about, uh, Leone's films where, um, silence is used so, so well, where it's like, just like you said, looks and, uh, the, the way he shoots faces is, one of the one of the more extraordinary things about his movies, and you know, one of the things too uh, is that I do feel like sometimes for a few dollars more is kind of the uh, the middle child of the trilogy. That in the sense that it often gets overlooked because everyone obviously likes the good, the bad, the ugly, and then of course everyone talks about a fistful of dollars. But uh, I do feel sometimes a little bad for this one because it is a really fine western in its own right. 
Uh, and I mean, obviously you could see the progression, which is really incredible because I think this was made a year after A Fistful of Dollars. Mm -hmm. So um, how he uh, matured as a filmmaker so quickly is really remarkable. Um, but yeah, I do think that uh, it deserves a little more love and, uh, you know, hopefully one day it'll be held in high regard. Although I think it's, it is to some extent, but I do feel yeah. people kind of pass over on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, always, I've always thought for a few dollars more was an escalation was it escalation in quality compared to a few dollars for a fistful of dollars um and you're you're absolutely right in you know what you said earlier as far as like the jump between Yojimbo and Sanjuro's is it's more it's it's more saying on the same field and maybe a bit down compared to the jump from for Fistful of dollars to for a few dollars more, and then you have the further jump from few dollars more to the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is simply sublime cinema in every oh, it is. shape or form. It really <laughs> is. I I don't know about you, but I feel like um, it's it's one of these films that I almost can't watch at home anymore. Like I have to see it on a big screen uh, just to really get, although with everything going on now, who knows uh, when that's going to happen again. <laughs> but I mean, uh, but um, so yeah, I do. Uh, it's yeah, it's just, it's, it's uh, the, er, everything about this film is just perfect. I mean, uh, the casting you've got, well, obviously Clint Eastwood, but you got Lee Van Cleef back. Mm -hmm. You have Eli Wallach who yes. for my money. And once again, this is very interesting because again, everyone always talks about Clint Eastwood that this is his trilogy, and I guess technically it is to some extent, but much like for a few dollars more, I do feel that Eli Wallach steals the show in Good, the Bad, the Ugly. It's almost like his movie. Every scene that he's in, you know, you can't take your eyes off him. He's so funny and so uh, so despicable at the same time, but, you know, there's almost a lovable aspect to that quality. Yeah. And I love and I love his uh, introduction. I think you'd agree, like, you know, when he when he bursts out the window with like a chicken in his yeah. mouth or a turkey oh, leg. Yeah. Yeah. It's just no, like, I, the... and I think I, I think I made a comment about that on uh, either Facebook or Twitter, but I made a point of referencing that it's like, you know, I mean, you, you, you have an opening like that where Eli Wallach crashes through a uh, window with a turkey leg. You, and the <laughs> words, the ugly come up on screen and yeah you you can't really go wrong there you really cannot really go go wrong there oh yeah it's yeah. just uh, it's it's such a great intro um and and again like uh much again like uh it's it's also a, it's a big step up in terms of uh, the, the style yeah. and uh, and again you really start to see uh things really stretch out even more and, uh, and and I happen to like that. I, I mean, I do like that sort of slow style. Like, uh, th this is a little off topic, but you know, like that I've recently uh, tried to get into Tarkovsky, but uh, mm -hmm. unfortunately, uh, you know, it just didn't work for me. But but I do love the visual style of Tarkovsky, mm -hmm. and I love seeing that style, but maybe applied in different circumstances or or different uh, different stories. So like, I almost feel like the good, the bad, and the ugly feels kind of almost like a Tarkovsky film in the sense that uh, <laughs> in, in terms of its staging with a lot of the wide panoramic shots and how, you know, people, you could actually, you could actually literally see people uh, take the time to think before they say their dialogue. Yeah. It, you know, it's just, yeah. or as little dialogue as there is, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so it's just, it's, uh, 
I'm, I'm trying, I think the first time I saw that was at a, a repertory theater here in Montreal. And I think I went through a phase where I started wearing a poncho. And uh, I think, uh, I'll never forget this. I think I once went on a date and I, I showed up with a poncho and she had to, she had to powder her nose and never came back. So, <laughs> so, so uh, that, that ended my little phase, but, uh, um, but yeah, no, it's just, um, it's really a sublime film. It's also really interesting because it takes place during the Civil War, yeah. uh, which again, <clears throat> you know, it's it's uh, and again, sometimes it's very interesting because you know some might say that you know an Italian taking a uniquely American genre is cultural appropriation, but sometimes in a case like this, you do need an outsider's perspective to gain perspective on your own situation because mm -hmm. there are some people who, uh, you know, some people who still glorify the Civil War, and yeah. I think you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so, um, but, you know, but because they have this romantic idea of what real mm. of what happened, but uh, you know, Sergio Leone is showing just how senseless and how violent and how you know just how how pointless the whole thing really was in terms of why are people killing each other. Right. Um, so I do think that outside perspective is very interesting because I think out of all the three, I think this might be the most political of the trilogy just because it's dealing with real world events. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was sort of, you know, showing the absurdity of war was a really interesting, uh, really interesting direction. And I feel that adds yeah. uh, a certain depth to this film that perhaps the first two movies didn't really, like, it, like if a fistful of dollars and a few, and a few dollars more are kind of like, um, if they're sort of like popcorn entertainment, like the good and the bad and the ugly is like Sergio Leone's like 2001 in the yeah. sense, like it's this, it's this weighty art film. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I love it. I, I almost feel like there's almost nothing you could say that hasn't already been said, but it's just, it's, it's, it's a wonderful film. I love introducing it to people mm -hmm. and, um, and, and again, the score is just, you know. Yeah, I've been. I was. I was fortunate enough to be able to watch it at the uh, Fox Theater in Atlanta uh, one summer, and it was. So that was my one time I've seen on the big screen. It was just amazing, and it's. I and you're absolutely right about the Civil War aspect, and it's funny because it's very. I, I feel like based on my admittedly a limited knowledge of the genre, it feels like most westerns take place after the civil war and they don't or even if they do take place during the civil war they don't necessarily address it and yeah that's a yeah and even with slavery too like uh you um yeah. you see it's uh it's it, it, it gets very glossed over mm -hmm. um i i yeah uh, I, I mean most uh because well i mean we could do a whole podcast about the because there's so many westerns that came uh, after the the man with no name trilogy um and uh, when you watch enough of these westerns they almost sort of fall into two or three different types like you've got the yojimbo storyline uh you've got the uh the um the, the lone gunman who's trying to save his girl. Mm -hmm. And then you've got sort of like a, a slave who's freed and he's trying to get revenge on his master. Yeah. So uh, it, it does sort of fall into different things. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like they're not always very political. Um, although, you know what? Um, there is one film, I think, called The Bullet for the General, 
which is actually pretty political about uh, a, a situation that was going on in Mexico. Uh, I'd have to look that one up and maybe send you a link. Um, but uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, they it's they 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 tend to take place around that area, uh, but they they either never address it or sometimes or in the case of like once upon a time in the West that that centers around the the building of the railroad across the states. Yeah. So. Um, um, although sometimes uh, there, there's one Western that you ought to watch. Um, it's by a director named Sergio Corbucci, who directed the original Django. Okay. Uh, if you haven't seen Django, that, that's another one that's really worth watching. But he did a film called The Great Silence. And uh, it was a unique film because it was the first Western, uh, spaghetti Western rather, to take place in the winter. So it's all snow. So right off the bat that that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, so right. Off. So that's uh, that's something worth uh, looking at. But it also has one of the bleakest uh, endings uh, that you will ever see on film, uh, because like even Leone can't mm. resist having a, a good like a you know the hero walks off in the end. But like Corbucci went yeah. even further, and but I won't spoil it. But that that's you, you should watch that one, The Great Silence. That's a really good one too. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah, like you were saying, I I, I do feel like. Uh, you know, the fact that this takes place during the Civil War kind of makes this a much more interesting film mm-hmm. because you do have that political element. Yeah, and it, it really, it's it's funny because of the fact that with, and I, I do want to say about Eli Wallach, we, you know, he, he's so fantastic in this movie. And it's like, it's one of those performances where I, I feel like if this movie came out now, he would be a sure thing for an Oscar nomination. It's mm-hmm. borderline criminal that he didn't get one at that point, but you know, I, whatever. But um, I I feel like this would be hard to pass up when it came to the Academy because of just how over the top and just how how galvanizing it is for the entire film. Yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, uh, I, I do know that, um, like, when The Good, The Bad, The Ugly had come out, it did receive quite a bit of criticism for its depiction of violence. But, I mean... Um, at the same time, I think Leone's approach uh, with a lot of these movies uh, is that um, he purposely makes the killings exaggerated because he wants to make a sort of tongue-in-cheek satire of the yeah. run-of-the-mill westerns that were being made at the time. So, um, and I don't know, I mean, because I do feel like maybe at the time it was maybe a little too ahead of its time, and perhaps it would have been uh, perhaps more lauded had it come out in the seventies, maybe when, uh, you had that whole golden age of Hollywood films, yeah. but, um, but no, I mean, I, I, you know, there's, I mean, there's so many filmmakers and films that have never received their just due like, uh, Stanley Kubrick, I don't think ever got an Oscar for, um, for any, for, as a director, right. um, David Lynch was nominated. I don't believe he's ever won, no, yeah. uh, and then Martin Scorsese got the pity Oscar for uh, The Departed. So, I mean, like, so there's so many people that are, yeah. so I, 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 you know, again, you know, at the end of the day, I do feel that, you know, while it's nice to get the critical praise, uh, it's, you know, if, if, if people are still watching your film 60 years after the fact, you've done something right. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny because of the fact that, you know, you, it, this, this, I think it, plays into just how well uh, Leone utilizes the Civil War as an important piece of this movie because of the fact that it really it really shows the 
senselessness of war. I mean, it's as anti-war as I think any movie has ever been made. I mean, it's even though you you do see a lot of brutality and violence. I mean, the scene where Tuco is being beaten up by Angel Eyes is just is as brutal as anything I think anybody had put on screen by that point. Um, oh have, yeah, that scene. And then you have the music that's playing under it. It's just it it takes it to a really dark. Uh, place is just beautiful. I love that music that Morricone writes there. Um, it's such a great counterpoint to what we're seeing. Oh yeah, with the uh, oh that scene where the prisoners are yeah. singing while he's yeah. oh yeah yeah that's oh my gosh, uh, yeah. There's just it's um I, I don't know if you had heard about this because uh, apparently I don't know if this is true or not, but there was um. Obviously, this was the last part of the uh, No Name trilogy, but I think there was that at some point there was some thought about doing a sequel to it that would have taken place 20 years after the original story, where it would have been Tuco going after Blondie's son uh, for the gold that he lost. Uh, Because I think one of the screenwriters has mentioned this uh, on numerous occasions that there were plans at some point to do a sequel, but obviously that never happened. And uh, although it's funny because that kind of sounds like what, uh, because, you know, Tarantino often uh, teases us with Kill Bill Volume 3, and it almost sounds like that's what that would have been like, where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's someone getting revenge uh, for past deeds. But, um, but no, I mean, all three films are, are wonderful. And then, of course, you know, Leone would go on to do Once Upon a Time in the West, where, mm-hmm. you know, that's a debate in itself. You know, what's the better Western between those two? And then, you know, there was Duck, You Sucker. And, uh, of course, Once Upon a Time in America, which, uh, which is, again, that's a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, they're both, uh, both, both outstanding films. I mean, people should... Uh, I mean, it, it feels silly to have to recommend two classics, but I'd be like, you know, it's like if on the off chance that you haven't heard of Yojimbo or the good or uh, the Man with No Name trilogy, I mean, please go out and watch these movies. Uh, yeah. And and I mean, these are I think these are kind of decent introductions to their respective filmmakers as well. I mean, with Kurosawa, I mean, you're you're right when we when you were talking about Yojimbo earlier, where it's like this is the type of movie that. Kurosawa could have done his sleep at that point. And I mean it's absolutely true. I mean this is this is definitely not on the same level of uh Seven Samurai or even Hidden Fortress. I mean, I think Kagamusha and uh Ron, which he did in his late career, are probably better than it personally as well. But at the same time, by this point, like this this is almost you know, it if if Akira Kurosawa has an autopilot, this is probably it. But it's still a lot of fun and it's really energized and entertaining to see him just do something small. It's like, I want to do something small and easy and just a lot of fun. And I feel like that's kind of that, that, that might have been kind of the mindset of doing Yojimbo and then Sanjuro. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I think if you haven't, if you're not familiar with uh, Kurosawa's uh, samurai films, I mean, this is is those two are probably a decent place to start, and then you'll get the uh, big meals of which afterwards. Yeah, I couldn't put it better myself. I I think it is a, a good introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I feel like. Um, 
and I'm just speaking from my own experience, but one of the reasons why I put off Kurosawa for so long was because of how intimidating uh, the lengths of the, his films are. And uh, so, uh, but, uh, so that's what I like, because I think Yojimbo is uh, an hour 40, so it's a pretty breezy watch. So um, if you get through that, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like my, I, I don't know about you, my personal Mount Rushmore of uh, Kurosawa is... Uh, Yojimbo, Hidden Fortress, Throne of Blood, and Seven Samurai. What's yours? Um, I would probably say, uh, I would probably say Ron, Akiru, Throne of Blood, and probably Seven Samurai. I, I've only seen Sam Seven Samurai twice, so I need to rewatch it again because it's been it's been several years since I've seen it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think those four would probably be my, 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 uh, Kurosawa right there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and just as a side note, uh, cause not to, not to bring it back to Godzilla, cause it seems like every time I'm on the show, <laughs> I always talk about, bring this back to Godzilla, but obviously seeing, uh, Takashi Shimura, uh, I think that's how he's pronounced his name, um, uh, seeing him in these Kurosawa films because he was in the original Godzilla as the esteemed uh, scientist. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of interesting to see him uh, doing uh, these other roles as well. So it's uh, so that, just a little side note. It was great uh, seeing him because he yeah. was wonderful in Ikiru and he's pretty much almost ha always had some sort of appearance in a Kurosawa film. Mm -hmm. um, actually, one of the interesting Kurosawa films was one of the first ones I watched was uh, Drunken Angel, where mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting because uh, you, Mifune was the suave and uh, sophisticated, whereas uh, Shimura was the more abrasive, when, in, when normally it's usually the opposite, where yeah. Shimura is almost like a, a Yoda-type character where he's so <laughs> serene. But uh, so, uh, so that was really interesting, too. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's, uh, you know, so far, I mean, this was my new year's resolution. I've stuck to it. And, uh, I think next on my block is Ingmar Bergman. So maybe we can have a talk okay. about him at some point, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, I, I thank my lucky stars for, uh, getting into Kurosawa because it's been really rewarding so far. Well, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a pretty decent place to wrap up. I mean, we, we, we talked a lot about, uh, these movies individually together in conjunction to one other and sort of the different launching places from uh the the same basic narrative uh that they went that's that's kind of why i wanted to do this plus i mean it's first time i've really had a chance to talk about either of these filmmakers on this podcast and you know i i think especially with filmmakers like Kurosawa and Leone, who are so influential to a lot of the type of movies that we've seen since uh, they came out with these movies, I and even before, uh, it's it's definitely important to put them in a uh, context and put them in as a big part of uh, movie history, which these films certainly are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the 60s really were, uh, a lot of people talk about the 70s, but I mean, the, the 60s were, was a really good era for film, especially in Japan, where there was a lot of great hits coming out. But uh, yeah, Matthew, thank you for once again joining me on the podcast. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, continue these discussions about, uh, you know, 
uh, some of these filmmakers. The Bergman Bergman one sounds a bit intimidating, but yeah, I mean, we can probably. I I think I can probably that'd be an interesting uh, discussion to have at some point. Well, we could also have a discussion about uh, Jess Franco. <laughs> I would love I would love to get your take on Jess Franco movies because one of the things I love about your writing is that you have this uh, this enthusiasm and optimism which is just pours off the page and it's so uh, refreshing to read. So I'd be really really curious to get your take on some of these films. I, but I mean, uh, yeah, I'll definitely uh, I'll definitely take a look because of the fact that I mean you've been you've been writing about them a lot on. Uh, facebook and so yeah i'm i'm uh i'm i'm definitely I, italian horror is definitely something that i'm i'm curious in uh getting some more exposure to so yeah i'm i'm yeah i'm i'm one of those i'm i'm sort of in in a position where you where you are as far as um like there are some filmographies i'm almost like more than halfway almost wrapped up with as far as where I'm uh where I've watched them and then it's like, you know, kind of figuring out well which which filmographies do I want to go to uh from here. And yeah, that's one I I, I would definitely be curious to uh see see his work, see how I feel about it. Yeah, I think that would actually be a really good discussion on uh, on Italian horror because that's a whole um, there. That, it's a really interesting history, and uh, again, if you like discovering films in chronological order, it's a fascinating journey to go on to watch. You know, the peak of the '60s to the descent of the '90s. So um, maybe we could do that at some point. I, I know we were going to talk about Kong versus Godzilla at some point, but I guess that's. What's the story on that? Has that been postponed, or is that um, still coming out? Or last I, if I remember correctly, it's still slated for November. I'd have to look, but uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, we we can, yeah. I mean, we'll 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 sort of go with that as as it goes. I mean, because you know, who knows what release schedules going to look like by for the end of the year anyway. Yeah. Um. I want to say it probably got pushed back, but I can't imagine. I think it's. I want to say it's still November, but um, okay. Yeah, I mean, we'll 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 definitely sort of play by ear from then. Yeah, I'll. Uh, yeah, they're they're definitely. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll definitely uh, try get some. Uh, Franco in to uh, to check in, then we can have that discussion. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. And again, I, <laughs> I'm really, really curious <laughs> to get your reactions. But um, but again, thank you so much for having me on. I think I just realized this is the fifth time I've been on the show, and yeah. uh, I always have a wonderful time. And, um, you know, um, I mean, I wish you all the best. I know with the, the movie theaters being uh, what they are right now, it's, it's a tough time, but I yeah. do hope that uh, things... Uh, I don't know. I hope things get back to some sort of uh, normalcy, but uh, we'll yeah. sort of see where we're at. <clears throat> yeah, we'll see where we are at next month because allegedly they're still looking for late June, early July opening. So we'll we'll, we'll see um, if that yeah. actually holds true. So. And Although I will say uh, this would be a great time for someone to open up a drive-in. Oh, I mean, so I know uh, the Plaza Theater in Atlanta has actually done that. They've done makeshift drive-in. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. And so, and a couple of 
one of the theaters around town, Dad's Garage, and now in uh, one of the only video stores left in uh, Atlanta Videodrome. They, they collaborate with the Plaza on a lot of screens. They're getting in on that, too. So, yeah, I mean, it... They're they're definitely yeah I mean some some art house theaters are still are doing that actually as part of as a way of uh, getting getting revenue during this time when they're shut down so yeah no it's um <clears throat> I mean it's it's a really tough time for a lot of people but yeah. uh, but but no but I but I feel for you and I, mm-hmm. I do hope uh, you come out of this. Uh, on top at some point, but, um, yeah. but thanks for, thanks for having me on the show. I mean, uh, this was a really nice, uh, distraction for everything that's been going on and, um, and continued success with, uh, with Sonic cinema. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Matthew for once again, joining me on the podcast. It's always great to talk to him and, uh, it's, it's fun to talk to him about, uh, different, um, different films, different genres and, different uh different types of films that i normally talk about on the podcast and that's one of the things i really enjoy about having him and having him on the show and we are talking about maybe doing some more of that and i'm looking forward to that um that's it for me for the sonic cinema podcast for this week uh gonna have a couple more interviews uh one with a filmmaker who's coming up with some interesting ways to <clears throat> get through the pandemic creatively as well as just some other uh, discussions. And so check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema at the Sonic Cinema podcast YouTube channel as well as www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much. <laughs>